Walk in the Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome back. As we wrap up the second part of our podcast on ATP 7-100.3, Chinese Tactics. Great. So looking at, uh, also looking at the content, uh, I, I touched on a little bit earlier within the pub and that some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with is chapter four, the tactical systems warfare. Um, in review, it seems uh, a lot of their concepts and some of their TTPs are a very similar approach taking, taken uh, in multi-domain operations or MDO. Um, since CAD is currently working on the next revision of FM 3-0 uh, operations to be published uh, next summer, uh, Mr. Creed, first, can we give our listeners a little bit of insight into uh, sort of our MDO evolution here at CAD? Yeah, there's, a, there's probably a couple broad points you want to make up front. It kind of relates to what Brad was just talking about, because um, I think it's applicable to both armies, really. Um, multi-domain operations is, is intended to encompass the, the, the range of military operations across what we now call the competition continuum. We used to call it the conflict continuum. All right, the distinction is without major differences there. But... Um, what you need to think through is, um, all right, so what is it that you expect the Army to do? So, like, what's the strategic context for that? And so our Army is, by definition, and at least since the Second World War, expected to be expeditionary. And it, it's expected to be able to conduct operations against any opponent uh, at any scale anywhere in the world as, as quickly as possible, all right? And so the strategic context since the Second World War is, you know, waxed and waned in, in different focus areas depending on what the Army's been asked to do. So we got an Army that has to do windows, right? You got to be ready to fight the Warsaw Pact in, in Europe. You got to be able to fight in Korea. You got to be able to fight in Vietnam. You got to be able to do a Desert Storm or Panama. Um, you got to be able to do an Iraq or Afghanistan. You got to be able to fight uh, in Europe again uh, post Cold War. Uh, to support our NATO allies should uh, Article 5 be triggered. Um, and then we've got, I think, five go-to-war allies in Indo-PACOM, right? And Indo-PACOM is a very different area of operations under different conditions. So that's one thing. Um, Brad talked on the modularity uh, point. You know, the Army was looking at this modular approach, when, and, and I think sometimes that's we uh, – we overcomplicate what that was supposed to be, um, but there was a bunch of circumstances that drove it in a certain direction um, that we have to make some corrections based off of. But essentially what you did with brigade combat teams and certain types of battalions, specifically your tank and mechanized infantry battalions, is you made permanent by your, your, your table of allowances uh, or your organizational structure what we used to formally just task organize to do. All right, so you made those permanent task organizations and, and you institutionalized them at the brigade combat team and combined arms battalion level. We never really finished doing it um, because we went to war and then we needed brigade combat teams uh, to rotate in and out of Iraq. And so I'm not going to get into all the policy things, but eventually you needed a certain number of these brigade combat teams. And... For the most part, they looked very similar. There were three types, but they were employed in pretty much the same way in Afghanistan and Iraq for more than a decade. Um, however, when you start to think through the implications of having to conduct large-scale combat operations, so you're no longer going to be conducting operations from a fixed point, you know, these forward operating bases uh, on a radius, um, in areas that you may have even been in before over a long period of time against the same kinds of threats, none of which can defeat you in, in open combat, and um, none of which can put significant portions of friendly forces at risk. That's a very different context for the employment of U.S. Army forces than uh, a large-scale, even limited, but large-scale conventional conflict against uh, Russia, China, Iran, or North Korea, for that matter. Um, so that's one thing. Um, so I would tell you that the focus on large-scale combat operations and that readiness predated 
uh, in terms of the guidance we got uh, to the force from General Milley in 2015-2016, then multi-domain operations did. Multi-domain operations started as multi-domain battle. Um, we call them operations instead of battle because we do operations across that competition continuum and we have to be able to uh, be prepared to do that. Um, and so as that multi-domain operations concept worked, I mean, there's certain things, and a lot of people have pointed this out. You know, we've been doing multi-domain operations for a long time. Joint operations are inherently multi-domain. You have different services because different services are focused on different domains. And then each of the services is, is in turn, multi-domain because they don't just focus, the Navy doesn't just focus on maritime operations, right? They've got air components, they've got space capabilities, um, cyberspace capabilities, and so forth. Um, the Marine Corps considers themselves the ultimate multi-domain operations force, and they've, they've always thought in terms of that way. What's different, I think, and what we're driving towards doctrinally, uh, and don't get hung up on the name, is that the context for the operations we conduct would be different. Right? So the doctrine you need, the, the training, um, leader development, material solutions, organizational solutions for large-scale combat operations against a peer threat are different than what you need for an Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, Somalia, uh, or even um, the, the operations in places like Haiti or, or uh, Bosnia. And so what we are driving towards is this idea, one, being able to see yourself in all five domains. In other words, what capabilities do I have in the U.S. Joint Force that I can bring to bear to enable operations on land? All right. There's a lot of them, but we need to be able to do them quickly uh, and at scale. And so, you know, taking two weeks to plan uh, a deliberate cyber and airstrike that's coordinated uh, against ISIS is different than what you need to do in real time during close combat uh, fighting Russian or Chinese divisions someplace. Um, so that's one thing that's a little bit different. Uh, two, is from a people standpoint, there's knowledge, skills, and attributes that have to be developed. Uh, and then there needs to be the kind of repetition under realistic conditions to, to figure out whether you're doing it the right way. All right. Things like cyber and space capabilities have been around for a long time, but their ability to be employed at the lower tactical levels is relatively recent. Not the dependencies upon those capabilities, but the ability to employ them to effect. Um, so that's seeing yourself. But then you've got to see the threat. And so I mentioned earlier, you know, what, we're talking about dealing, fighting, uh, opposing joint forces that can do to us what we have been doing to others with impunity. So if you don't understand that, if you don't understand what capabilities they can bring to bear that in, in terms of the eight forms of contact, this understanding that you're under continuous observation. If you're under continuous observation, uh, you're at risk of detection. If you can be detected, you can be targeted. Um, and so that's different. So MDO is, is as much about a cultural shift in terms of our military uh, approach uh, our standards of discipline, what we expect to occur during training, and then the leader development that enables that at each of the echelons throughout the course of your career, right? The, the senior leaders that fought Desert Storm or OIF-1 in 2003 were the products of decades of repetition uh, in preparation for that type of large-scale fight against a peer threat, right? And so it's going to take some period of time, we hope it's not decades, to be prepared to do that kind of thing again you know, because we just don't have the repetitions in. Uh, and very, very few people left serving uh, actively who actually did that. And none of them did it in their current position, right? I might have done it as a company commander in 2003. That's very different than being a deputy commanding general of a division in 2022, right? So, uh, we're trying to remove the mystery there, the, the secret sauce. It's really as much about culture and the way that you're, you approach operations and then understanding what the requirements are. So seeing yourself, seeing the threat, and then understanding yourself and the threat relative to, to each other within the operational environment uh, that you, uh, in your assigned area of operations, right? Because we're not going to be talking about global things. Ultimately, Army forces are assigned an area of operations, and they have to operate there. And so now I'm focused on that threat relative to that uh, area of operations. And oh, by the way, 
those threats like a Russia or China and even a North Korea or Iran have capabilities that are outside of your assigned area, and they may even be outside your assigned theater of operations, that they can bring to bear on you in your area of operations. And you need to be able to understand that, right? And there's got to be this di continuous dialogue between lower echelons and higher echelons about who's going to help protect you against this while I'm trying to do that. Um, so I think, in a nutshell, that's kind of where we're going. It's not that the idea of multiple domains is new. It's the context in which we employ capabilities and understand the threat that's new. Thank you, Mr. Creed. And then uh, just kind of a follow-on for Brad, uh, since we're talking uh, tar tactical systems warfare as sort of a Chinese, not necessarily equivalent, but um, si similar, or similar scope type of uh, operations. Uh, can you uh, enlighten us a little bit on the Chinese perspective? Yeah, their uh, their understanding of they their understanding of multi-domain operations is very similar to ours, and they they call it cross-domain operations. That's the at least the most common translation. They have they have a bunch of different names for it. Um, they understand domains in the same way that we do. Um, they're I don't think they're as codified as they are for uh, the U.S., but it's basically the same idea. It's a you know a discrete plane on which some sort of contest occurs and. And um, their understanding of how to fight in a cross-domain or multi-domain environment is pretty similar. And the way I typically describe that is they try to build formations that don't have any clearly exploitable vulnerabilities in any domain, and also has the ability to detect an enemy vulnerability and then exploit it and create that window of opportunity that um, lets you do you know gives you the freedom of action gives you the the room to maneuver or whatever and so it's real similar um conceptually to to how we see all of that stuff and um their approach to building units their approach to how they've um developed this understanding of mass task organization is all built around that basic concept so it's all built around creating a, a unit that is very well hardened and very difficult to um that doesn't have any obvious weaknesses and at the same time is able to to detect what it needs to and and make rapid decisions make uh you know uh work very quickly um short decision cycles and so on to exploit whatever opportunity is available and they it's a pretty coherent thing top to bottom they they um have come up with a uh what i think is a pretty solid operational concept which it, it mirrors ours in a lot of ways and um how that might look on a battlefield i mean that's it's pretty wild to think about all of the stuff that is potentially available to everybody in this it, it's you know it wasn't that long ago that we could only engage things that we could vis you know see visually that that's in living memory that that was a uh, that was how battles were fought and now we have the ability to to influence a tactical operation from literally the other side of the world either kinetically or non-kinetically and it, i i don't know i think it's going to be um fascinating how this stuff develops over the next uh, couple of decades because it, it's a wild change from how um, how warfare has been traditionally and it, the it's I think it's fascinating that both we and the PLA have kind of aligned our um, our understanding of it at least at this point in time so I think that implies uh, to a degree that we're um, we're dealing with a, a peer that someone who thinks in, in a who is as sophisticated as we are when it comes to thinking about this stuff. So I would throw this out there for either of you two to to answer. Um, and I don't think I'm crossing any lines by bringing it up, but um, I think there's a certain amount of, and it's true with all armies around the world, is they look at whoever the pacing armed forces are. So you can talk about air forces or navies too, right? But um, and they say, okay, well, these guys have been doing this for a long time. They're the dominant thing. So there's certain aspects of what they do that we want to mirror because those are best practices and why, why invent something from whole cloth when 
we can borrow other people's ideas, best practices. Our Army's expert at that. We've been doing that throughout our history, right? Um, so there's nothing abnormal there. But I think we have to be careful about not over-mirror imaging and assuming because, I mean, I, at least my limited readings indicate that whatever the Chinese armed forces do, it's unique to the Chinese context and their strategic goals, right? And so I talked about us having to be able to do everything uh, across that range of military operations in an expeditionary fashion around the world. I mean, I, I'm not aware of any real Chinese strategic goals of conducting expeditionary offensive operations anywhere outside of 100 miles off their coast, right, with, with maybe potentially a Taiwan. But they're not, that's not what they're building themselves to do. And I think that gives them a certain advantage, right, because you've got a, you've got a focus, right? I've got a focus in my, at most, my near abroad. And that focus, at least for ground forces, is not global. I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, um, it, they're, they're expanding that, uh, that understanding, if you will. The, um, they're, they anticipate the need for a global or at least semi-global expeditionary capability over the next uh, 30 years or so. And mm -hmm. they're building a force structure to support that. That's really uh, the the future role of the planned Marine Corps is as their um, expeditionary arm. And I think they're primarily looking at not just regionally, but um, Africa in particular and the Middle mm -hmm. East as, as spots where they may need to deploy conventional forces. And that's not something that China's ever been able to do. So that's a, um, that's a major shift in their, not just in the way they construct their military, but in their entire worldview. China under Mao was very insular and very, um, you know, internally focused and so on. But the party now is very involved globally, sure. um, not just uh, looking militarily, but their their preference is to work with you economically or, you know, or exploit you economically, depending on your on your viewpoint. So um, the certainly the the way the PLA has changed, or particularly over the last 15 years or so, is I. I think in a, with that in view. Um, with that being said, I think you made a, you make a really good point about not mirroring, and uh, we, I, the U.S. Army in particular, I think is one of the worst organizations around at doing that. We just we it's a cultural thing that we, um, as long as I've been around the army, it's always been a thing. We we tend to mirror and. Um, with the PLA, it's appropriate in some cases. You know, they, there are a lot of similarities, but there are a lot of differences too. And one of the, the best ones I can give is their, um, their understanding of domains, as I said earlier, is pretty similar to ours, but they also, there's a big difference. And they identify information as a domain, mm -hmm. as a specific discrete domain in the same way as space or ocean or land or whatever. Um, and so, and what I mean by information is not necessarily... Um, social media, or or you know, are that that sort of um, cyber type stuff, if you will. Um, but it's getting it's the they call it the cognitive battle, yeah. or it, it, one of my it's a little bit of a loose translation, but brain control. Mm -hmm. That's a, a, a focus of their entire system of warfare is winning that information battle and so much so they consider the information domain to be the high ground mm -hmm. like that is their they win that first that is their first priority and so the the implications of that when you're looking at how how they build forces and train and so on they're pretty significant and that's that's a big difference that's something that um, we haven't really adopted with the same level of enthusiasm, and I, I don't have any thoughts on who's right or wrong about that, but it, it is a big difference. And um, well, that also has some correlations back again to traditional Chinese or classical yeah, Chinese yeah, exactly. military thought. With Sun Tzu being, you know, the the goal is to win without fighting. Yeah, because yeah, that's the, the highest highest form of, of generalship and all. That. Yeah, that's a perfect example of that. Um, and it, the follow up to that that has been an ongoing theme throughout my involvement in this project is how on earth do we replicate that in training how that's that's something you know we are we are pros at 
replicating a maneuver on maneuver fight it, it anywhere you want to do it any base it particularly at the ctc's but that's something that we do it is well or better than anyone in the world but how do you how do you replicate that information kind of assault how do you um train soldiers to how do you harden soldiers against that kind of thing how do you t- train people to react to it how do you counter it and so on that that's something I, that's a lot harder to answer that's something you can't necessarily build a ntc to um to address so it's something we have to um build into our training model in a big way if we we consider china to be the pacing threat and want to um be ready to counter their their number one effort their main effort that's something that's absolutely critical yeah, that focus on cognitive effects. So we've been we've been discussing that we're working on information doctrine right now, um, and we'll start with the big I information writ large along you know the different military applications. But it's our ultimate goal though is to get after doctrine for achieving cognitive effects, and we've been discussing back and forth where we ought to use that. I mean, instinctively, again, if you're a certain age, you always understood that when you're executing operations, you're looking to generate both physical and cognitive effects. I think one of the challenging training events is they're not long enough for those cognitive effects to be genuine, right? In other words, you got to make the training event so demanding, much like ranger school or the Delta uh, selection process, whereas you actually do get genuine psychological impacts from the operations. You know, you know, what does it feel like to be isolated and cut off? You know, and there's consequences for that that are going to make me physically uncomfortable enough that I don't want to do that again. Um, and so, I mean, I'd be interested in knowing, well, how do they do that, <laughs> right? I know that's their goal, but how do they train that? I mean, I don't think they have unlimited resources to have 45-day brigade rotations at their combat training center, but maybe they do. I don't know. Yeah, I, they struggle with they struggle with it in the same way that we do. Um, you know, particularly, I, it, I think it brings not only um, questions about training techniques and so on, but it raises some ethical concerns that are sure. not necessarily, uh, you know, it, that aren't in play when you're just doing a maneuver versus maneuver thing. Like how, how what is the appropriate level of um, psychological pressure to put on a soldier in a training event and how do we reconcile that it, it's a hard question to answer yeah. and I, I don't envy the doctrine people having to work that out well luckily we don't have to we can just point suggestions <laughs> i mean we can point things out but i mean the the, the folks that are you know commanders that, that come up with training well all we can do is give suggestions you were going to say something uh, you know i would just say aside from the training aspect which i certainly don't have an answer to uh, something to consider in a way that uh, information, psychological operations, that sort of thing is a leveler, is that how the, you know, that if an adversary implements some of these um, situations upon the U.S. Army, how we react to it is going to be different than how if we, you know, implemented some of these things on China or any other adversary. In terms of the U.S. Army has more policies and procedures in place and more concern for the individual soldier, perhaps, than some of our, our threat actors or our adversaries do. And so the effects might be more devastating, even though it's the same act. And, you know, some of these acts could be implemented by VEOs, violent extremist organizations. It doesn't cost a lot of money to... Um, you know, maybe somehow contact a deploying unit and indicate somehow falsely that a soldier's spouse was in a devastating car accident right as they're mm-hmm. to deploy, for instance. Those effects are going to be um, potentially more dramatic on us than they would be on an adversary. And so that's something to consider that, that diverges the point a little bit. But, you know, when it comes to training on those things, I'm not sure how you can address them. But in, in real life, if those things were to play out, um, you know, that that's something that any actor can implement at very little cost to great effect. Well, we watched the Russians do that in Crimea and the Donbass, right? right? I mean, that's not like theoretical stuff. That's exactly. stuff that actually happens in real time. So so how to prepare for that, I guess my point is I, I don't know, and that's that's a challenge that I think that we will always face. Um, you know, you can, you can talk through it, but that's not the same as, you know, personally receiving that type of attack. Yeah, so it's about resilience and building up a level of yeah. inoculation against... Um, these kinds of tactics and techniques and procedures and just knowing that they're going to come, right? I mean, right. the last thing you want is surprise. Surprise makes everything else worse. 
or even like with our training exercises, a lot of times if we're getting information related like uh, measles injects or anything like that, most of the time to the staff it's just chaff because we're so focused on conducting operations to transition to that next phase that, and you know, better or worse, they're not always plotted out um, appropriately to achieve a, an effect on the unit. So it just ends up being kind of like part of the AAR, uh, you know, ignore the IO information mm -hmm. messaging campaign or the psychological campaign. And that's something we definitely need to get better at. So uh, one more kind of uh, big question is we talked about the uh, Combined Arms Brigade and Combined Arms Battalions kind of being those building blocks of like your group armies. Um, still held at the national level, you've got your strategic uh, support force, you've got your joint logistics support force. How, um, because we like, Amer like US Army wise at the BCT level, we're pretty good at like coordinating through divisions and corps to achieve those higher level effects. Um, how's the PLA currently kind of doing that with those being retained at the national level? Our our take on it right now is that it's still uh, developing in in most respects. And when you look at what they're trying to do, it, it's an awful lot to task a, a, for instance a brigade commander with maybe integrating national level assets from outside of their service like that that's not a, a competency that comes very easily and um, so particularly when you look at discrete um, military capabilities like what the strategic support force would deploy or what the uh, the rocket force would deploy um, uh, you know that that's a hard thing and they pretty freely admit that they are figuring it out like that's they're still working out how that's going to look and um i they're the general principle that they're trying to pursue is getting the capabilities they need down to the lowest level and letting those leaders act relatively freely in employing those. So it, it mirrors mission command in, in that respect. Um, but I, my perception is that the bureaucratic nightmare of the PLA is, it, it, there's a lot to overcome there. And um, yeah, it, how that might look in a, in a real world Situation that's anyone's guess, but it's certainly they're they're going through the muscle movements and training scenarios, and we see that most readily in recent, very recently, um, in these big quasi amphibious operations that they're doing, which may or may not be designed to um, make Taiwan feel threatened. But what they are certainly designed to do is to demonstrate how joint the PLA has become to anyone who's watching. And amphibious capabilities. Yeah. And, it, you know, the um, Plan Marine Corps, along with the PLA's, uh, the PLA's amphibious brigades, um, something uh, Mr. Creed said earlier is our Marine Corps uh, designs themselves as the ultimate multi-domain organization. And it's the same in the PLA. They, they, they have the same problem set with an amphibious operation that we do. And so that's really where they've focused that uh, that development of the joint force more than anywhere else. Uh, uh, back to uh, both Angela and Brad. Uh, we talked a little bit about the PLA actions in regards to the pub. Um, and we've talked a, a little bit about the similarities and differences uh, in the approaches by both uh, the People's Liberation Army as well as U.S. doctrine, specifically looking at uh, recon and security, offense, defense, and stability options but as well as some distinctly Chinese differences. Uh, could you enlighten the ones, uh, or some of the ones in regards to both similarity and difference that uh, have jumped out to you um, while writing the pub? Yeah, I think the, the biggest one, particularly as it relates to tactical confrontations on the ground, the, the PLA's approach throughout this system warfare construct is going after asymmetric uh, solutions to things. So um, they 
almost obsessively try to avoid force on force type of situations through whatever means they have available, whether it's standing off with artillery or, or blending in with the, the surroundings or whatever, whatever, um, whatever technique um, they, they decide to go with. So that I think differs from us in one major respect is that we, our, our ground doctrine in a lot of ways is predicated on us being better than you when it comes to the force on force kind of confrontation. And we believe that to be true and we structure a lot of our approach to create that situation where it's force on force and we can let our superior training and equipment and, and leadership and so on do its thing. The PLA does not make that assumption. They actually, a lot of their approach to this stuff is predicated on avoiding that type of situation, either through disintegrating units before the force on force thing occurs or um, undermining the, the morale, uh, um, situational understanding, whatever, before, any, before close contact happens. Well, we do have some similarities in that, too, is like if you're looking at the Chinese, they're maybe looking at what they consider to be our centers of gravity, trying to, similar to some joint, uh, some joint targeting, looking at potential high value and high payoff targets list, but just stopping there, it, like you said, disintegrating the network, disintegrating the C2 capabilities of the U.S. forces to continue, uh, to con continue operations. But where we kind of break off and then push forward and can still conduct operations after going through joint targeting cycles, things of that nature. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. The, the high-value target is, it, the same targets have high value to whoever's, you know, whoever's target it is, basically. So that, that doesn't necessarily change, but the... Um, is it the approach to warfighting functions that's a little bit different? Um, it, because that does, it, it often serves as a organizing construct for staffs and, and, and the operations process. And sometimes we can be prisoners to that, right? We're not flexible enough or we're not uh, looking at a blending of capabilities so much as these hard warfighting function distinctions. Yeah, I, th I think um, that's a good way of putting it. And the way that, uh, that expresses itself in their planning process is um, Right, the way we write orders, the, the tactical op order, it's very straightforward, right? Particularly the mission statement. It's very, we're going here, we're doing this kind of thing. The, the Chinese don't um, use that same approach, you know, a simple plan executed aggressively or whatever. They, they look instead, their main focus is on how they can degrade and, and, and undermine and so on. It, something that I uh, alluded to earlier, the winning that information battle, that's, that's their primary focus. And that's not to say that the U.S. doesn't do that stuff. We certainly do. And it's also not to say that the PLA isn't perfectly competent at maneuver warfare, because they almost certainly are. It's just a difference in uh, emphasis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just, uh, I just go back to this idea of uh, sometimes I think we limit it. And we've been talking about it within the Combined Arms Center here for several years about, you, you mentioned the base realignment uh, and, and BRAC. You know, we actually had people start thinking about uh, warfighting functions based on where we position branches within TRADOC on what center of excellence. And so if we're all stationed together, then we must, you know, this is what we do and that's our focus. And even more nefarious in some ways is the way we organize our staff with some of these uh, functional cells where we have a protection cell, an intel cell, movement maneuver cell. You almost ended up with uh, a less than optimal combined arms approach to employing specific capabilities, right? So the warfighting functions became broad euphemisms. Um, and then that's your problem, so tell me what we're going to do with this as opposed to integrating very specific capabilities. I, I don't want to hear about protection. Um, writ large, uh, and my expectation is every formation is going to take the measures necessary to protect themselves. That's a cultural piece of this. But I do want to specifically know what my air defense coverage is and then what my obstacle plan is. And right, it's got to be integrated into it. It shouldn't be the purview of this part of the staff. It needs to be central to the plan, the scheme of maneuver, the course of action development, and so forth. Um, Protection is our favorite one to pick on, but you can you can look at a lot of other ones, and, and Intel being an example as well. 
right? It, at one point in our Army, if you were an infantry armor, engineer, field artillery officer, you were expected to know as much about the threats capabilities in your battlefield operating system as you were about your own, right? The, the, the intel officers on staff were supposed to focus on the threat course of action in, in, case, in, in uh, the sense of uh, most likely or most dangerous, right? Um, or maybe most effective. We had played around with that idea here recently too. But uh, you were supposed to, the two wasn't supposed to tell you what the range of their systems were. You were supposed to know that, right? And that's not something, that, that kind of fell away from the culture. And I don't think the war fighting function thing necessarily facilitates that approach. I'm not saying, and I'm certainly not saying in this podcast that we're going to walk away from war fighting functions, but we do need to, we do need to think about that a little bit. They've only been around 15, 16 years, and, and so, you know, that doesn't mean we're, we're fixed with them forever. You know, we're moving away from BCTs as the coin of the realm. Large scale is large scale, right? And, and so you have to be able to enable those brigade combat teams to do what you want to do to kind of get away from the banging your head on the wall, phalanx on phalanx approach, right? That's not very subtle. Sometimes you don't want to be subtle, but sometimes, you know, it pays to, to do something other than the direct approach. And so you need an echelon that's got the appropriate span of control uh, as you move up. And then those echelons have to be able to fight as formations, which drives you towards um, the functional, multifunctional brigades and looking at specific capabilities instead of warfighting functions to enable a joint and combined arms approach to the operations you conduct, which allows you, I think, to be more nuanced and, and um, sophisticated as opposed to that, you know, the two sledgehammers just banging away uh, on each other's shields kind of thing. Um, and so I don't know what your, your thoughts are that, but I think there's a lot of myths about um, you know, which armies are more casually averse than others, right? We always keep getting this rap for our, our armed forces are very casually averse, and yet we're in a war in one case for 20 years and another one for more than eight, um, and there was no evidence with the professional force anyways that casualty aversion was an issue. Vietnam is exhibit A of, you know, I don't see much evidence in casualty aversion for a, what was a really limited conflict. In fact, I think there's evidence that our Cold War opponents were kind of uh, in awe in some ways of our willingness to accept casualties for something that wasn't, in their view, particularly strategically important. So I don't know what your guys' thoughts are in terms of the Chinese in that, that regard. Yeah, it, that's, um, that's a point that I've made a handful of times uh, in papers I've written, there's, I think, a very pervasive view that Asian cultures in particular are more willing to throw soldiers at the machine gun until the machine gun runs out of bullets. And that's their approach. And we talked earlier a little bit about the, uh, the uh, mythology about that. Um, certainly, I, the when you look at the PLA, they are they, they're acutely aware of how um, of US operations globally and, and we have taken casualties and significant casualties um, in a way that they have not. And so that's they don't make that assumption as far as we can tell. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the PLA I think has a, a military's a military professional's view of that like casualties are probably a necessary. Right element to achieving a combat victory so we're, we're going to do what we need to do and our opponents will do the same now i think that sometimes gets muddled with the views of the communist party and the that is that's all tied up in the view that the communist party views itself as more resilient than a western style liberal democracy and by resilient, what we're talking about is their, the society's ability to sustain a conflict that might be um, politically unpopular mm -hmm. or something like that. And casualties play into that to a considerable degree. So um, it's not necessarily a question of, um, of the opposing armies being more comfortable with casualties, but it's the, the CPC in particular believes very strongly that their government is better able to endure the political fallout of, of military, particularly military failures, but any sort of 
of major military cost that's imposed on on a country. So it's kind of a national will. Yeah, view, yeah, that's right? a that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, but again, I think their history, uh, at least in recent times, has been you know they view everything they do as defensive, right? Certainly, the war with Japan. Really, yeah, at least they characterize it yeah. as such. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the war with Japan, uh, they were civil war, uh, and they probably you could even argue the Korean War. They viewed that as as defensive and, and uh, existential threats to the party or the nation. Right? There's no difference between the party and the nation ultimately. So, yeah, it, and you know, that's a fascinating um, future scenario. Is it what what do the Chinese people think about a Chinese expeditionary operation? And is that how significant would that change the political landscape? I have no idea. Maybe maybe they're all enthusiastically behind it. Maybe it, it could cause uh, a risk rift that the party does not uh, anticipate. You know, the the party has made some pretty significant um, miscalculations with their management of information in recent years. Hong Kong being the best example. So. They they uh, definitely don't have it all figured out with that regard with with regard to all that stuff and um, well, it's kind of the same like if you're talking about their expansion in the South China Sea uh, that's all of that is characterized as defense against yeah, yeah. the foreign invaders so I, I just you know going back to the casualty thing I just think there's some demographic trends and and cultural aspects that. Um, you know, you're not talking about an army of peasants with, you know, just all these endless human reserves. I mean, you've got a society that's that's significantly modernized, significantly middle class, uh, and a lot of families with only children. And so I, I figure that's got to work into some calculus because regardless of how you characterize their government, the government still has to be responsive at some point to the requirements and concerns of the, the people they govern. So. I think there was another point that I'd be interested in your guys' thoughts and, and this idea that, well, we have all this recent combat experience. You hear people talk about us being the most combat tested and, you know, okay, but the types of fights we've been doing, uh, if you want to talk about our special operating forces, you could say that's true. In any short period of time after a fight like Fallujah or Sadr City or, or uh, you know, some of the places in Afghanistan, you could say that and you certainly say it at the small unit level. But experience is transitory, right? You can go to any U.S. company or battalion now, and there's a lot of people with no patches on their right uh, sleeve. And in fact, the vast majority of people don't have combat patches anymore. And most of those patches are deployment patches, right? Because not everybody actually saw any combat. So, you know, how careful do we need to be about, you know, kidding ourselves about what level of experience we have and saying, well, these guys don't have any recent experience, so, you know, we're going to have an advantage there. I don't know what your thoughts are. I think that is a great point. And the, uh, it's interesting. I, my impression in the DOD community is most people agree with what you just said, that our experience from the GWAT era is gradually tapering off. And what's more is that's not necessarily the most uh, – applicable experience to a, a major combat type of confrontation. And I think that's spot on. Um, but that being said, when you look at the PLA's perspective on their lack of combat experience, it's something that they're concerned about. And it's um, when you, particularly when you look at the, how much has changed in the PLA since their last official military engagement, they have a brand, everything is new. Everything is is untested outside of uh, relatively controlled training environments. And so it's almost like a proof of concept problem for them. It's not necessarily um, we think our our leaders are incapable of of enduring the challenges of combat, but rather we have all this stuff that we haven't really tried against a, a external thinking, breathing reacting opponent and that that's not a problem you can really solve without actually creating a, a open conflict um the the other thing um that i i usually discuss um insofar as uh, combat experience goes is the um something that the u.s 
I, I don't know if enjoyed is the right word, but throughout the Cold War and, and uh, really throughout most of the post-World War II era, we had a pretty consistently high level of readiness. And there, there, you know, it, there are um, peaks and troughs to that. Sure. But in general, we our force was pretty, our, our readiness level was pretty high. And that was something that you mentioned earlier. We went into Desert Storm and OIF-1 with a relatively inexperienced force and just executed what we had done in training right. and did so very effectively. And... Um, that that's a proof I, I i think to the readiness level that was pretty consistent throughout the cold war and after the cold war and the the pla has not enjoyed that same level of readiness it they're um but they're getting after it now. yeah it's a yeah that's um that's something that they're really uh self-conscious about and for a good chunk of the last 50 years, their army has just been sort of fat and happy and sitting around at home. They know they're not going to have to deploy. They know that they're if they're going to be activated, it's most likely going to be as a result of some major existential threat to the homeland, and they're not going to necessarily have to worry about maintaining that level of readiness at all times. And so when they they started looking at our where we're short, where where we need to improve. All of these fat, happy PLA officers who have spent 25 years at the same base in the same unit with no, they're basically civilians in uniform. That's something that they needed to seriously address. And the, their development of, of realistic CTC rotations and trying to change the general um, readiness culture throughout the PLAs, they're, they're working really hard on that. It's something that they're very concerned about. So it's not necessarily, I think, a, a function of combat experience, but it's more like uh, um, issues of culture that uh, combat experience can influence. And most of their major operations have been uh, disaster relief for you know, the random earthquakes or yeah, yeah. outbreaks. So that's where a lot of their I guess, like, war fighting experience yeah. currently is re real world. But again, if you've got the right ideas and you train them to a very high level and you have something to prove or you feel like you've got something to prove, that makes you a, uh, a potential opponent worthy of uh, respect and concern. I mean, you got to be take that seriously. And I think one of the uh, most interesting things I, I read from the mouth of the of junior-ish PLA officers is they're they have a lot of um, they have a, a pretty sophisticated understanding of the U.S. military for the most part for obvious reasons and um, so they're they're self-conscious about their readiness level and their their training level and so on but they also are savvy enough to recognize. Yes, the U.S. has a lot more experience and our training level, we train more, we train harder, etc. But that doesn't necessarily translate to getting it right in the future battlefield. So, the, and the, the, the I'm going to misquote this, but the, the general gist of it was the U.S. has picked up a lot of bad habits through mm -hmm. the GWAT era that are difficult to get out of the force when you're looking at a completely different scenario, a major combat scenario. Those bad habits can die hard and that, that might, that's a, uh, something that can be exploited from the PLA's perspective. I think our leadership would probably agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> so moving into part two of the uh, pub PLA action, specifically gonna ask a, a just sort of a broad question to the uh, audience here. Uh, we talked a lot of similarities, differences, some mirroring, some not mirroring, um, and specifically in the appendices that I noticed within the pub, we talked uh, sort of the Chinese equivalent of warfighting functions, intel, fires, protection. Um, do you see, uh, you know, if we're, if we're kind of talking about the uh, competition continuum, uh, do you see them gaining uh, cap more capabilities in regards to some of these uh, aspects of warfighting functions and uh, fighting modularity or um, still a ways to go as far as your assessment goes? Yeah, I'd call it, if you could picture it, it's, um, 
as a line graph, they, they were going up and up and up for a long time. And part of that is just a function of the fact they started so far behind the rest of the industrialized world. And they got a lot better very quickly through a combination of um, buying foreign weapons and stealing foreign weapons and stealing other foreign technologies and uh, massive, massive improvement to their own military industrial backbone and improvements in their society education and the quality of recruits and so on. So, you know, it, it got, they got much better very quickly. That is, you picture it as a line, it's starting to level off now as they, they get closer to the cutting edge. And it's something that they've run into in a kind of unexpected way. And a good example of that is they, they developed iterative models of new tanks that they started from ancient Russian derived designs and and got better and got better and got better and and their most recent ones the type 99 or 99 alpha and this was it's entirely equivalent to a modern western main battle tank in in most respects and they're like great all right we finally caught up with tanks and then sit down to actually write the check for these things and holy cow these are expensive and we cannot afford this so um what they ended up doing is buying a relatively small number of these super fancy modern tanks then upgrading their older ones to to be more competitive against a, a modern opponent and that's a great example i think of how they uh, they're starting to hit the wall if you will with, with regard to capability too heavy, too heavy to drive across the bridges yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's it'll protect you against anything but it can't actually go anywhere so that is kind of you know economics matter whether yeah. you're a capitalist a market economy or yep. a communist Centrally planned, right? So, um, in closing today's panel, uh, just wanted to uh, pass this back to Angela and Mr. Creed, as well as you, Brad. Uh, can you describe kind of, we, we talked about it a little bit, but specifically how the four should kind of incorporate this as opposed to, you know, 7-100.2 uh, um, op four tactics, um, this new ATP into their, you know, tr planning uh, exercises, training, and uh, execution of operations. Recognize some of the implications for OP4 and use at our training centers, as well as developing this as like a near-peer threat during our Warfighter series exercises. But how do you kind of see um, planners now that it's out uh, and has been out for about three to four months, what have you seen in regards to uh, unit feedback? Right, so the biggest thing is that people are so hungry for this information, and I think Brad alluded to that kind of early on. There's a lot of information that is out there, but not necessarily easily consumable. So um, hopefully this product is, is making it consumable for people and easier to understand. Um, the big thing to really understand, too, about, about this ATP and the others that will follow is that it, it focuses on, on, in this case, how China would fight the U.S., not just a regional adversary, and that's a big difference. So understanding that, getting familiar with China and their thinking and their assets and all of that is what this publication provides. Um, and then while I can too, you know, Brad alluded to doing LPDs, so he did about, I think maybe nine or so 10 weekly LPDs, leadership professional development forums um, on teams accessible to lots of people. So we're doing what we can also to get that information out that way. This is helpful. Um, you know, a big focus is how can we get this information to people because not everybody will sit down and read a 200 plus page a publication cover to cover. Hopefully they do, but there are other ways to get the information. Um, so thank you for, for doing this um, because that's, that's really helpful. He's, Brad spent a lot of time on this. We know it's, it's really important. Um, and how they can use it is important, like I said, recognizing um, the importance of getting familiar with, with China. Um, some other things too, just to plug if I could, is we did do a special edition of our Red Diamond newsletter that we put out quarterly. That will be released this week, actually, um, as we're speaking here, so in December. Um, and it, it pulls out different articles um, based 100% on what's in the ATP. So we're just trying to get lots of ways to get the information out so that people can understand and become familiar. Um, it's CSA's guidance that we need to be familiar with China, as we've said many times, as much as we were with, with the Russians in the past or with the Soviets. So, so that's what that's here to do. Um, it's, it's a lot of information. Um, but there are a lot of ways to get a hold of it. So We're also uh, currently in the process of publishing the audiobook for it yeah, as well. Yeah, very exciting. Thank you for doing that too. Brad? Yeah, I'll uh, answer that in a little bit different way. 
Uh, one of my most enthusiastic customers, going back to even before publication, was Seventh ID, which it, it that's, makes sense. You might imagine they're um, this is their their big target, and their uh, I think it was their ace chief, or maybe one of the warrants in their ace. Uh, it had a great quote that I, I have since used pretty regularly is he wanted this information to be what their folks read when they're on fire guard or when they're bored in the motor pool or whatever. And so for, you know, your average E4 out there, the, the big book isn't necessarily what, you, you don't just throw that at a specialist and tell them read this. That's not going to generate the sort of results that you want. So what they did was create a smart book from the, um, the content to the ATP and kind of, distilled it down a little bit and it made it uh, more ideally more easily consumable for lower enlisted folks and then distributed it to everyone and you know gave it out as as enthusiastically as they could and I thought that was just a fantastic application of this entire thing that's something that units can do it's it's a good example of uh, uh, approach to disseminating this kind of information um, and at, at the same time, they, I worked with them on a couple of different exercises and the way they approach exercise design, they, they use the ATP as the playbook, if you will, for how they want to replicate the op for and so on. So there, it's a pretty coherent, um, way of using it you're first of all informing the soldiers or encouraging the soldiers to inform themselves on the on the one side and then on the other side you're creating you're using the atp to replicate the threat in a way that hopefully would be recognizable to someone who's read the book and that that's a i thought that was a, just a, a really good example of a good practice that the the rest of the army could look at yeah definitely a lot of the pic, uh, pictures and images and graphics within the book can help like through the uh, intelligence preparation of the battlefield process, uh, building our uh, situation templates, our doctrine templates, our event templates. So, absolutely. Yeah, but it's about Major General now Smith, who's the 7th ID commander, and then Major General, now Lieutenant General Brunson, who's now the 1st Corps commander, uh, being aware that this product was being developed, right? They come here to Leavenworth fairly regularly, and us talking to them about that, and then driving that down into their subordinate organization. Because without the senior leader interest in driving that situational awareness down and then, you know, hey, come, let's come up with some ideas and, and, and normalize this in the culture. Uh, we were out there, I think they even have the old style, and, and Tradoc G2 did this too a couple of years ago. We got the old, from the old days, the posters you could hang in latrines and in the hallways and on bulletin boards showing threat systems and so forth. I think that's a big deal. I think the other thing, and this is something that I talk about with audiences, we don't want to have failures of imagination, right? And, and so the war is not necessary if there was a war to start, uh, should a war start, God forbid, but um, you can't assume that you're going to be at home station when that happened, right? We rotate forces around the world deliberately, uh, and so your brigade, your battalion, your SFAB team, whatever, um, is on a rotation nine months or a year to Korea or to somewhere in Indo-PACOM or for that matter when we get to the Russian ATPs, Europe and so forth. You better know what the threat is and how they're going to fight because should deterrence fail and you happen to be over there, you're going to be the 21st century of Task Force Smith, right? Uh, well, hopefully a better end result than that. And that's the goal is to make sure there is a better end result should that uh, unforeseen circumstance happen and it's I think it gives people a tool to be serious about preparation for the deployment right and we're not just going there to be there we're going there to fight if we have to preferably to deter but the best way to deter is be prepared to fight the people that you would be uh, most likely to fight in, in a particular part of the world so I think that to me is the the real value it, it gives some the chain of command a tool to show people that we're serious about readiness and we're training to what purpose right oh we're going to be ready to fight okay fight who right there's a lot of who's out there and so this is our first big tool uh, from a doctoral standpoint to give them the the who the what the how
so I think that's a big deal and I really appreciate what you guys did putting this this publication together because it was a long road getting here uh, Mr. Creed, Angela, Brad, thank you again for your time today and unique insights into Chinese tactics. We look forward to the next publication released by Tradoc G2 on Russian tactics in the near future. We'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit that subscribe button on either Apple or Google Podcasts to get new episodes automatically. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, at U.S. Army Doctrine, for updates from the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate on new episodes, as well as our Doctrine Digest and Foxhole Fundamentals video shorts, audiobooks, and most importantly, new Doctrine. Finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Major Rich Deagle, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.